Heavenly Father, we do pray that your kingdom would come here today in and among us. Come in our hearts, come in our church, come in our city, in our nation, and on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray now as we come to your word that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Convict us, challenge us, change us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Got a secret to admit to you today. Though if I were a betting man, I would bet that most of you would admit this as well. See, I have a strong desire for recognition. For recognition. If I do something good... I want other people to notice what I do. And I want them to see me dishes. I want my wife to notice. <laughs> if I make a nice shot in basketball, I enjoy the high fives after. I want others to see me as a, a good friend, a good husband, a good father, a good pastor, a good worker, a good athlete, a good neighbor, a good Christian. I, I like getting compliments. I enjoy being thanked. I don't mind admiration. <laughs> Anyone with me? <laughs> don't we all desire this? The recognition? Isn't it ingrained in us? Right? Even from a, a young age, young children desire their parents' approval and praise. As we grow, we want our peers' acceptance. We want to be seen as cool. This desire for recognition is why we hate admitting faults or confessing our sins or making apologies because then someone might see us as lesser and we don't like that idea. I think this is a very natural thing for us to want to be seen and recognized as good. But the question is, is it a good thing? Is it a good thing? Is it a helpful thing or a harmful thing or somewhere in between? My answer to that question today is it depends. It depends. It can be very good and it can be very bad depending on one critical factor in any situation. It depends whose praise you're after or whom you want to be recognized by. Today, we're beginning a series of sermons that are from the heart of Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew 5 to 7. And over the last couple of years, we have broken the sermon down into smaller chunks. So if you, I don't know if you were here, but if you remember we did a series on the Beatitudes, on those blessed R's at the beginning of chapter 5. And then we, did it, we also did a series on the rest of the chapter called But I Say... Last year, and this was based on what the ways Jesus reinterpreted and redefined righteous living. I now like to take us back to this scene and into Matthew chapter 6. Go ahead and, and turn there to Matthew 6 if you haven't already. You can grab a Bible from the chairs in front of you or your own, or your, you find it on your phone, but find Matthew 6. Figure after a year going through an enormous long book. It wouldn't be a bad thing to spend a few months in one chapter, all right? 
But what Jesus says in this sermon was revolutionary. It really turns our ideas of blessedness and our assumptions about righteousness on their heads. Like, you think you should be living this way, but let me tell you how things actually are according to the kingdom of heaven. In these chapters, Jesus gives us a picture of what following him should look like in our lives. Perhaps best summed up by the metaphors of us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're meant, those pictures were meant to tell us that we are meant to live very distinct and different lives from the world around us. We're different, and that's a good thing, and people should take notice of that. As he says in chapter 5, on a hill cannot be hidden. It says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, as we come to chapter 6, I think the question that I asked earlier is going to become central. That's who do you want to notice you? From whom are you craving or seeking recognition? Because as Jesus constantly makes clear here, he cares way more about our hearts than anything else in our lives. I'm calling this series Secret Righteousness. And I think you'll see why as we go along. But just to, to set the scene, all right, of Jesus' words here, let's read a few verses. If you go back to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, this is the season that Jesus was in at this time. And then I'm going to just try to summarize Matthew 5 in like three minutes. It's going to be tough, all right? But chapter 4, verse 23 says this, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Into chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then we have the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And these, and these Beatitudes make the point that God blesses his people abundantly with all kinds of blessings from himself. Blessings which should then lead to us living those distinct salt and light lives in the world. Following this, Jesus boldly claims to be fulfilling God's word in the Old Testament. We just spent a lot of time there in the Old Testament, right? Jesus fulfills that. He has fulfilled the law. And yet, he says that doesn't negate us following God's word that he gave us then. Look what he says in verse 20, for example. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is still very important. When we studied this, we saw that our righteousness should surpass the most religious people's righteousness, not because we are morally better than them, 
but because our righteousness, God-given righteousness, goes deeper than that. Being a, a righteousness that is given to us by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Being written on our hearts there. And that's how our righteousness is to surpass them. In each of the sections that come after this, Jesus gives these examples of this heart righteousness. That how we feel or think about someone matters as much as what we might do to them. That sexual sin begins in the heart and thus requires ruthless repentance. That our words reflect our hearts. And so we have to be really careful about what we say. That we need to respond to the evil that happens to us with some heart attitudes of acceptance and generosity. And finally, he gives arguably the hardest command of all, to love our enemies from our hearts. Let's read this one. It's going to lead right into our thoughts for today. Verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this was not talking about moral perfection. This was talking about merciful perfection. In other words, that we are to love others with the same perfect love that Christ has loved us with. But throughout Matthew 5, this idea of righteousness, of course, is a big word that you might not have a clear theme throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness, of course, is a big word that you might not understand right away. But since it's Really key to this entire series, I figure I better define it really quick. All right? So the Bible tends to speak of righteousness in, in a variety of ways, but two main ones. The first one I've referred to before as a righteous standing. A righteous standing. That, and this is speaking about our relationship with God, our relationship to God. We are actually born as unrighteous people. We do not live right lives. God gave us a right way to live, but we fall so far short of his standard of righteousness. And so now that if we were to stand before God on our own, we would be rightly condemned. However, Jesus came to earth and lived a perfectly righteous life. And then through his death, offers to trade places with us, as it were. Offers to, to swap his righteousness for our unrighteousness. So now, if we trust in Jesus, we will stand before God as righteous. That is pure, holy, perfect, not guilty. That's a righteous standing. All right? And if you are a follower of Christ, you have this righteousness. Okay? By God's grace, he has given it to us. And if you don't, it is freely offered to you today. You can take your unrighteousness and give it to Christ and he will save you, he will purify you, he will forgive you if you come to him. But a righteous standing should then inevitably lead to a righteous living. Righteous living. And this is something that we don't automatically have, but that we grow in 
over time. The first, God gives to us. The second, he calls us to. All right? This kind of righteousness is a a moral rightness of character and conduct. It's learning to think and speak and act in good and holy ways. All right? So that's righteous standing and a righteous living. Now, to forewarn you, this series may end up feeling a bit like a spiritual angioplasty. If you don't know what that is, that's when a doctor goes into your arteries and works on your heart, right, to clear up some blockages so blood can flow more freely. Here, God can do some probing deep in our hearts, our spiritual hearts, into our spiritual arteries to clean out some junk, help his spirit have fresh pathways to flow through. Martin Lloyd-Jones warns that chapter 6 is a very searching chapter, even a very painful one, saying, I sometimes think that it is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us, and it will not allow us to escape. But... Thank God for it. Here's a chapter that brings us face to face with ourselves and enables us to see ourselves exactly as we are. But I repeat, thank God for it, because it is only the one who has truly seen themselves for what they are who is likely to fly to Christ and to seek to be filled with the Spirit of God, who alone can burn out of them the vestiges of self and everything that tends to mar their Christian life and living. All right? Verse 1 really introduces the whole chapter. Look at it with me. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now look at that verse. When Jesus talks about righteousness here, what kind of righteousness do you suppose he's talking about? Well, he says that this kind of righteousness that we practice, right? Referring to things that we do. So this is a righteous living, not a righteous standing. This is not talking about how people are saved. This is talking, about to, this is talking to people who are saved about how to live as saved people. All right? But here, Jesus is giving a warning. There is a wrong way to be righteous. It says, Beware. Take heed, be careful, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So our righteousness should not be a very public thing. There should be a private side to our faith, even a secret side to our faith. And why is this? Because motives matter. Our hearts matter. Can't see our hearts but they matter. And a right thing done in a wrong way becomes a wrong thing. John Stott explains, Christian righteousness is righteousness unlimited. It must be allowed to penetrate beyond our actions and words to our heart, mind, and motives, and to master us even in those hidden secret places. Authentic Christian righteousness is not an external manifestation only, but one of the secret things of the heart. Now, if you were paying attention, you might think, 
how does this jive with chapter 5? Because earlier Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may, so that they may see your other people in order to be seen by us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So does Jesus contradict himself? No, notice that Jesus doesn't say to never practice righteousness before others. He says to never practice righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. He is dealing directly with our motives. All right? We shouldn't want people to notice our behavior, to notice us, but to notice God. Jesus is really dealing with two very different issues here. He speaks against our cowardice when he tells us to let our light shine, and now he's speaking against our pride, our, our vanity, when he says to not show off. A.B. Bruce says that we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. But in both cases, we're to seek God's glory instead of our own. But Jesus is warning us here about a very serious matter. Because if we desire to be noticed by other people, it's pointless at best, sinful at worst. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus might as well be saying, be really careful what you're after, because you just might get what you want. Like a dog chasing its own tail. If you catch it, it's going to be ultimately disappointing, worthless. Pointless. Here's the main principle I think verse 1 gives us. That righteous living should not be motivated by public recognition at the risk of being pointless. Right? Righteous living shouldn't be motivated by public recognition at the risk of being pointless. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We have a hard time grasping the significance of this because we don't know exactly what the rewards God will give are going to be. But I think I can say with confidence that they will be better than anything we can ever experience here on earth. To miss out on them would be beyond a tragedy. It would be worse than Dropping and breaking a brand new phone. Be worse than flushing a winning lottery ticket down the toilet. Be worse than watching your house burn down. All right, because God's eternal rewards, everlasting rewards, they have to be vastly greater than all earthly blessings by nature. So, if we don't want to miss out on this, if we don't want to lose a reward from God, it says that we must not act righteously in order to impress others. Ask yourself this question. Who is your righteousness for? Who is your righteousness for? When you read your Bible, when you pray, when you go to church, you help the needy, you serve in a ministry, who are you doing these things for? There are three options. 
One, you're doing it for the Lord's sake. Two, you're doing it for your own sake. Or you're doing it for other people's sake. But really, if you think about it, when we do something to please other people, we're usually doing it for ourselves, aren't we? As Lloyd-Jones says, ultimately our only reason for pleasing men around us is that we may please ourselves. Our real desire is not to please others as such. We want to please them because we know that if we do, they will think better of us. In other words, we are pleasing ourselves and are merely concerned about self-gratification. That is where the insidious character of sin is seen. What appears to be so selfless may be just a very subtle form of selfishness. That's probing, eh? But the whole, the whole point of living righteous lives should be to please God. And what, what other possible point could there be? It's why God gives us breath and bodies and talents and time and gifts and blessing to bring glory to him. That is, it's nothing less than the chief end of man to glorify God. You might suggest that, well, maybe we should be good just to make the world a better place. Okay, fine. What's the point of that? No, really, what's the point of that? The point should be to glorify the God who made the world. If not, then it's utterly pointless. Because this world's going to end, the world's going to burn. You might say, well, we should do good in order to altruistically care for other people. Sure. But why? Why? If God doesn't factor in here, why not live for yourself? Why not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? (laughs) And you might contend, well, it's not really a bad thing to pursue these things for your own well-being happiness, and it may. It helps you live with more peace or more happiness, and it may. But what good will that do you in the long run? You're going to die. We're so short-sighted. I believe that we either live for God and his glory, or our existence is ultimately pointless. So how might, how might we fall into this trap of, of practicing our righteousness to be seen today? Well, almost any form of serving others can be corrupted by this motive. We want to we be on a worship team in order to be up front, visible, to show off our talents. We want to be in leadership, to be respected, be seen as important. We want to teach so others are impressed by our knowledge. We want to serve so others see us as trustworthy or diligent or committed or kind. We want, to, we want others to love us, to appreciate us, to, to really to validate our significance. Other pious or religious behaviors, good things, right? These are, these are good things, but they can be so easily polluted by self. We may dress modestly. We may dress 
up for church in order to impress people. We may show hospitality in order to, to show off our homes or our lifestyles to other people. We may join an accountability group in order to impress someone with our holiness. <laughs> Social media. Social media is a breeding ground for this issue. Instagramming our devotions. <laughs> Posting photos of us doing good stuff, like you know, going on a mission trip, helping some charitable event or cause, sharing articles, sharing content to show that we care about certain things. You ever heard of the term virtue signaling? Virtue signaling, the official definition is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinion or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. Listen, the internet is full of this. It's full of virtue signaling. Us trying to show that we have some virtue. Got to examine our hearts here. I didn't think... Have I fallen prey to these self-centered motives? Doing good things for the wrong reasons. And if we're honest, I have a feeling we would all have to agree we have. So, how do we break free? How do we break free of such deeply ingrained motives. We've got to repent of our self-centeredness. And that, the first step is admitting it. Right? Confessing that you have sinned against God and going to Jesus for forgiveness. And then we must resolve to turn away from our sin, taking pains to change. But, hear me, if you want to get rid of bad motives for good, then you have to replace them with good ones. You have to replace them, which we'll talk more about soon. But first, before we get there, Jesus gets really specific and talks about one issue in particular. A first example of this principle in action. Our righteous living shouldn't be motivated by public recognition. For example, our giving should not be a show for people's praise. Our giving should not be a show for the praise of people. Let's see how Jesus says this. Verse 2. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now notice first there that, that Jesus says, when you give, not if you give, right? That we would give was a given. Giving to the needy here. Really, this could refer to any kind of giving someone else a helping hand. So that may be money, maybe time, food, gifts, hospitality, manual labor, whatever. 
Okay? It could mean giving a tithe to a church in order to, to share with others. It, mean, it could be giving to charity or to missionaries, to church planters. It could mean sponsoring a compassion child. It could mean caring for the hungry, for the homeless. It could mean helping someone move, providing transportation, providing child care. So many different ways. But for people who have been graciously given the riches of heaven... We should naturally be giving back out of whatever abundance God has given to us. But in our selfish human nature, we can take these good deeds and make a mess of them. And one of the worst ways to do this is by turning our giving into a show. In ancient Greek culture, hypocrites, you know the word hypocrites? Hypocrites was originally a title for actors like in theater. But John Stott explains that figuratively, the word came to be applied to anybody who treats the world as a stage on which he plays a part. He lays aside his true identity and assumes a false one. He is no longer himself, but in disguise, impersonating somebody else. He wears a mask. Now, there's no issue with actors doing that, right? Everyone knows they're playing a part. But if we're hypocrites in our faith, that's a real issue because we're actually trying to deceive people, pretending to be someone that we're not. We're playing a part. Jesus says people in his day were being hypocrites by making their giving into this theatrical sound no trumpet. He says, do not be like the hypocrites. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Now, we don't know if anyone actually had trumpets blown to announce their arrival. The point was they were drawing attention to themselves as they gave. And Jesus mocks their display of generosity. This is a, a ridiculous picture he paints. Okay, just Imagine it today, okay? Imagine walking downtown today when all of a sudden you hear music blaring, okay? Maybe a, a troop of bagpipers <laughs> or a full-on rock band, okay? Just blaring music, and then all of a sudden someone comes strutting around a corner right where this, this panhandler is sitting, and the guy holds up his hands, music stops, whips out his wallet, takes out a $100 bill, hands it to the beggar, Music resumes, and he struts away. <laughs> Got his own theme music. <laughs> and this is crazy. It's a, it's a crazy picture. And, it, and we think we would never do anything like this. But anytime we draw attention to our giving, we, in essence, do the same thing. It's blowing our own trumpet, tooting our own horn. Charles Spurgeon says, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. Now, not too long ago, I knew of a family, a family friend of ours with a, a bunch of kids who had their house burned down. And someone started a, a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for their needs. I felt we should give to them, so I go online and submitting my donation. But as I did so, I had a choice. Make the gift anonymous or leave my name. Man alive. Was the temptation ever fierce to leave my name? Right? How else would they know that I cared about them? 
Or plus others might see my name there and then they know I'm a generous person. It's, it's so easy, so easy to try to impress people with our giving. To, to put on a show. It's easy to think, I hope someone notices as I'm writing this check or putting the envelope in the box or making my online donation. People in Jesus' day wanted to be noticed and praised. It says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. That was the underlying motive. They are desiring the approval, the praise of men. Like the religious leaders that are spoken of in John 12, who says they believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess their faith in him because they were afraid of other people's reactions to that. It says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And by the way, if you feel like you're hardly ever noticed or recognized for what you do for others, that may be a sign that you're in love with people's praise rather than God's. Jesus says that the problem with pursuing people's praise is that that's all you'll get. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. It's like, sure, people may applaud you for doing good stuff. And truth be told, that may be a good thing for them to do so, right? It's good for us to show honor and gratitude to others. But if that's all you want, then God's going to withhold something even greater from you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that praise. Not getting anything else. But, but you could have had so much more. Now, you might wonder, if Jesus is using rewards here to motivate us, then should we actually be pursuing these things for ourselves? And the answer is yes. I believe that, that God built the desire for recognition inside of us. Right? It's, we naturally desire. It's not an inherently bad thing. We should desire recognition, but only the right kind of eternal glory from God. The fleeting praise of people, but the eternal glory from God. And notice the verse up there, John 12, 43. Loving glory wasn't wrong. Okay? They should have loved the glory that came from God over that which came from men. See, here's the point that that Jesus will make, which we'll end with today. Giving should be done secretly for the right reward. Okay, giving should be done secretly in order to pursue and receive the right reward. So first Jesus tells us that as much as possible, giving should be in secret. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Now, obviously, we can't literally do that. Your hands do not have independent brains to know what's going on with the other one. Right? You're, you can't just hide one hand behind your back and think, okay, I'm good. 
Right? No, that's not the point. John Stott explains the point well. He says, not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian giving, there is a sense in which we are not even to tell ourselves. We are not to be self-conscious in our giving, for our self-consciousness will readily deteriorate into self-righteousness. So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it is possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from men while simultaneously dwelling on it in our minds in a spirit of self-congratulation. This doesn't mean that we won't know what we give. Of course you will. right? But what this means is that as soon as we're done giving a gift, we should try to forget it. We don't congratulate ourselves for how sacrificial or loving we've been. We, we shouldn't be keeping, we don't let it go to our heads, keep recalling it to take pride in how generous we are. We don't keep track of all the good we do as if we're like noting them in a book. Donated to charity. Didn't tell anyone. Extra credit. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, don't keep these books or accounts at all. And we should just do things as God moves us to and then forget them. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. I think it would be amazing if we were a secret hiding church. Not in the usual sense of hiding secret things that are bad. God forbid. Okay? But in the sense of Jesus' words here, hiding secret righteousness. Things that would usually provoke praise, deserve praise from others that would only increase our pride. Wouldn't it be amazing if one day in glory we find out just how generous we were People just giving sacrificially all over the place to meet needs wherever they pop up. Right? Without needing any credit for it now. It'd be amazing. I would love to be blown away by a thousand secrets that you kept. I, I want to be surprised on that day by how generous I was. Because whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So how are we actually supposed to be so secretive and self-forgetful to, to pull this off? I think we can see a hint in Jesus' words at the end of verse 4. It says, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Listen, you can keep a secret from other people. You can even keep a secret from yourself. You cannot keep a secret from God. And this, God sees everything. And this might be a scary thought at times, but here it's a marvelous one. Jesus says, you shouldn't keep any accounts, but God does. And thus, God will absolutely, extravagantly reward us, guaranteed. The only way to become self-forgetful enough to become this generous is to see and to focus on God's generosity to us. And your Father 
who sees in secret will reward you. God's grace, God's grace to us shows us that any good works or giving we can do isn't because we're amazing, it's because God is amazing and he's been good to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, how are we to do this? There's only one answer, and that is that we should have such a love for God that we have no time to think about ourselves. We shall never get rid of self by concentrating on self. The only hope is to be so consumed by love that we have no time to think about ourselves. In other words, if we want to implement this teaching, we must look at Christ dying on Calvary's hill and think of his life and all he endured and suffered, and as we look at him, realize what he's done for us. So the answer, as usual, is Jesus <laughs> and everything that he has done for us in the gospel, giving no thought for himself, dying in order his own, sacrificially dying in order to save self-absorbed sinners like us. The astounding love given to us in Jesus is what should move us to give like he gave. Any additional rewards we get in the end are bonus. He's our treasure. He's our chief reward. Though he's the one who both said and then showed that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's far more blessed to receive God's recognition and God's reward for giving than to receive any kind of praise from people now. Riches I heed not nor man's empty praise. Thou, my inheritance, now and always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make this a reality in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Make us fix our eyes on you, on your Son, so much so that we forget ourselves. And may our lives be testaments be of your glory and how good you have been to us. Move us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.